You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 021, with Nicole Kolarjian, founder and CIO of Quest Partners. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know how valuable your time is, so I appreciate you spending some of it here with me today. Now, on today's show, I'm talking to Nico Kolarjian, founder and CIO of Quest Partners. Originally of Armenian background, Nico spent part of his childhood in Lebanon. But by the age of 16, he moved to the US to escape the wars around him. The uncertainty he had to live through as a child has clearly influenced his approach to life and later on the way he designed his trading strategy. In a very personal and detailed conversation, we discuss some of the major risks that Nicole sees in how investors are perceiving skill and alpha with some of the large hedge funds today, what he does to differentiate himself from these risks, and how daily meditation helps him see the world with clarity, which allows him to focus on continuing to build a solution-oriented alternative investment firm. And for those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersunplugged.com website. Now let's get on with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Nicole, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Niels. Now, as I was preparing for our conversation today, I noticed a few really interesting things that I'm sure we'll have a chance to discuss today. But here are some of my initial thoughts. One is the fact that you have a long and, may I say, very solid track record in your original program. But the program itself is a bit different to many of your peers, which I found uh, fascinating. Also, you seem to have diversified your business into other product types, such as an equity program, both hedged and long only, as well as a tracker index where you seek to deliver the returns of your CTA peers. And I would be tempted to say that your firm seems to be looking to find solutions for investors rather than being a purist in one particular strategy. And finally, I noticed that you actually started on the other side of the table, so to speak, namely as an allocator or investor into hedge funds and CTA. So that in itself is, of course, an interesting way into what you do today. So 
I'm really excited about all these possible topics that we can talk about today. But of course, before we go into too much details about your company and where you are today, I would really like if you could take us all the way back to the beginning, telling us your story and what led you to take this path. And also feel free to go back as far as you want and and share how you met your business partner, Paul, and and I'll be open here and say I'm going to let you pronounce his surname because I don't think I'm going to do that justice. <laughs> it's a Paul Skianians, uh, so Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Polish name, actually. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, great. Thanks, Niels. Uh, so in terms of background, uh, I guess I'll go way all the way to the beginning. I guess uh, I, I was born in Lebanon of Armenian descent. Okay. So I grew up, uh, you know, in Middle Eastern culture, but uh, also within an Armenian family. So a lot of uh, tradition and that sort of thing. Uh, and this somehow came into play later in terms of the way we actually, with the way we look at the world, the stability of the world, etc. So we'll cover, okay. we'll go back to this uh, soon enough. Fantastic. Um, at uh, age 16, I came to the States and... Uh, you know, uh, due to the war in Lebanon and becoming a little bit uh, too intense. And uh, we went to college at uh, Notre Dame to study electrical engineering. Okay. Um, uh, from there, uh, came back to New York and uh, went into consulting. I worked for Anderson Consulting. Mm -hmm. And at Anderson, I spent uh, most of my time uh, working at uh, Solomon Brothers, ah, to okay. totally by chance. Okay. And... From the engineering background, uh, we went into more financial type of application of programming and uh, modeling for mortgage-backed security, uh, uh, you know, prepayment models and that sort of thing, completely by chance. Sure. So I became more and more interested in finance. Um, of course, I was, you know, working downtown New York and, you know, Wall Street uh, was very impressive at the time. <laughs> uh, so I started uh, really, you know, doing a lot of study on my own. I started programming on my own, start designing models in 1991. Okay. And um, <clears throat> from there, uh, decided to get a more formal education in finance. So went to Columbia Business School. Mm-hmm. Um, during business school, I was mainly spending my time on programming and designing models and uh, all kind of things like that. <laughs> and when you say models, I mean, just, just to put things in context, I mean, what kind of models were they at the very, very early beginning? Uh, you know, funnily enough, way early at the beginning, before looking at trend following, uh, I looked at volatility breakout models, which okay. means much, much more short term day trading, uh, holding the trade three to four days um, per trade, uh, that sort of thing. Okay. And it's only later on that I actually, you know, uh, started uh, developing trend following models. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, it's kind of funny, but I, I used to read a, a newspaper called uh, Investors Business Daily that was very um, kind of giving investors a lot of tools to evaluate different stocks using different uh, measuring techniques, some fundamental, some technical. Uh, and obviously, the fundamental uh, uh, factors were difficult to test, but the technicals, uh, it was pretty easy to test and to program. So I, I got the data. I started uh, you know, de developing a testing platform. Um, and it's it's due to that newspaper really that I went into you know technical trading and designing models. Interesting. So, Very yeah, interesting. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
uh, yeah, so for, for Vol Breakout, actually, it was uh, pretty early on. I guess at the time it was, you know, Monroe Trout and uh, eventually Toby Crable and that sure. sort of uh, uh, names that started using it. But yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So uh, it, it started, you know, during business school, I was interacting with all the professors at Columbia. And, you know, Columbia is more directed towards equity and fundamental, uh, you know, investing and that sort of thing. Sure. And I was going around with my models and showing this to the professors, and nobody was getting very excited. Okay. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, during, business, uh, during business school, I also worked at uh, Deutsche Bank and did you know, value at risk for, uh, for the U.S. bank. So right. uh, over the summer and into the second year. So that was also still in the early 90s. At the time, value at risk was relatively you know, novel. Sure. So it came out of business school um, in, in 94. I had models ready to go to start a CTA. Okay. Short-term models, long-term models, uh, you name it. I had already a platform to track, uh, keep track of trades, uh, download data, all kind of things. Fantastic. Yeah, after business school, I still spent, rather than getting uh, quickly going into the industry, I spent another six months actually still working on uh, developing models. So... It was a hundred percent of my time was still, you know, dedicated to, uh, you know, to research at the time. Sure, sure. Uh, finally, in uh, at the end of '94, I, uh, by chance, I got in contact uh, with Victor Teicher, who at the time was uh, running a Risk Arb hedge fund. Okay. He was looking for a trader, and uh, I guess he was impressed by my background, and uh, he told me, "Listen, what you're doing is very interesting." Uh, I like it, but I, I need a trader. So why, why don't you join me as a trader and we'll do your stuff down the line once there's time for it. Okay. So from uh, looking at, from going from a place where I was looking to, ra to raise money to start a CTA, next thing you know, I'm, I'm trading in a risk arb hedge fund. Yeah. Um, designing hedges for all kind of, uh, you know, positions all over the world and trying to reduce overall market risk and try to really isolate specific factors within the stocks that we were actually holding. Sure. Um, and of course, you know, we we're trading a risk arb uh, globally and really there was never any time to, uh, <laughs> to focus on the CTA strategies. Yeah. Uh, so eventually uh, I moved on. But it was a very, very interesting uh, experience for me because I was so used to trading in the direction of the price action. Yeah. Uh, and in this fund, we were actually trading very, very fundamentally driven, very value driven, uh, sometimes in illiquid positions where we would, based on our buying, I was actually influencing the price. I mean, even in a small fund at the time. So it was from a psychological perspective, it kind of like erased everything I knew about how to trade. Sure. And I realized that there's, there's other ways. It really broadened uh, my horizons uh, pretty substantially. Interesting and, and sounds like great experience to get uh, exposed to early on. Uh, definitely, especially that I wasn't looking for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was, I was sure I knew what I needed to do and it was like a straight line path. And somehow the, the detour was very useful, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. 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 Uh, so after that, I joined uh, Western Capital. Mm -hmm. Uh, Western Capital at the time uh, was a marketing firm uh, and they were looking uh, potentially they were interested in starting a CTA and to raise money for you know a startup uh, for the CTA that I was looking to start and I joined with that intent mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and as we were preparing, uh, somehow by chance, uh, the opportunity came to start a fund of fund. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I said, oh, yeah, that shouldn't take too long. At the time, the industry was much simpler and due diligence was not as sophisticated and in-depth as it is today. Sure. So um, we started a couple of fund of funds that allocated to all kinds of strategies, including CTAs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran those fund of funds for a couple of years until I realized that I was getting sidetracked again and um, uh, left and started uh, my own firm. Um, initially as a fund of fund. Right. And then in, uh, in 99, uh, a partner joined me. Okay. Um, and uh, we started a CTA called Enterprise Asset Management. Okay. Yeah. So, so a few detours along the way. A few detours, but I would say I'm very glad I went through those. Yeah. Sometimes uh, not getting what you want is the best thing you can get. Sure. Uh, because long term, you know, there's things that are very, very useful that you're, you, we don't even realize that we don't know. Definitely. <laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. Um, so here we are. Um, we're running a CTA and a fund of fund, 99, 2000, 2001. Uh, 2001, uh, my partner and I decided to split. Sure. Um, and uh, I started Quest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Paul had uh, joined me uh, in 1999 at Enterprise. Right. And we came in and uh, he, he decided to you know, follow me here at Quest. Fantastic. And uh, we hired the, the head trader of AHL at the time, Neil Hanover. Okay. And off we go. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, so our assets uh, rose. I mean, when we started the quest, uh, we had about, uh, at Enterprise, we started about two, three million of, you know, uh, private capital. Sure. Um, and at Quest, we started with about 25 million, okay. and our assets uh, slowly grew to a first peak, which was around like 650 million in assets, mm-hmm. uh, around 2007. Okay. Um, in 2003, we actually uh, signed an agreement to give 90% capacity rights okay. to all our strategies to the fund of fund of a large CTA, a very right. well-known CTA. Right. And uh, they allocated about, uh, you know, 550 million to us at a peak. Okay. And we just basically ran money for them from 2003 to 2010. Wow. Interesting. Very unusual. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But very interesting uh, in, indeed. And and maybe you can sort of, you know, as a, as a sort of a lead on to to that, just I know we're going to talk a lot about more about the details, but just take sort of a, a, a jump and say, so how does the business look today? What kind of programs do you run? Um, and, and sort of roughly what, what the AUM is as, as well? Uh, today, we're managing about uh, 760 million. Okay. Um, of that, there's about uh, 80 million in our traditional CTA strategies. Right. Um, then uh, we have uh, the, the replicator has uh, about 80 million as well. Okay. And then the rest is in uh, hedge products, so equity hedge and mm-hmm. fixed income hedge. Uh, I think equity hedge is around uh, 450 million and uh, fixed income hedge is around 150 million. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, and in in total, how many different strategies or programs do you do you run? Uh, 
uh, we're offering the original program, which is the benchmark CTA strategy, mm -hmm. the QTI, which is the replicator, yeah. equity hedge, fixed income hedge, and equity long. So I guess about okay. uh, six different strategies. Okay, great. And if you notice that uh, most of the assets that we have today are actually in the new strategies. Yes. Uh, which was kind of uh, out of necessity. We had to develop them because in, in 2010, that large fund of fund had to redeem due to the, their own complications. Okay. We did very well for them. Sure. Uh, but as they redeemed, and we're here, we are in an environment where people are deallocating from CTAs. Yeah. And we said, okay, we need to raise money quickly and what can we do? And uh, realized that it was a question of fees, a question of more uh, like the relationship between uh, CTAs and the equity markets were not as clearly defined as they could be, et cetera, et cetera. So we defined these, you know, different programs uh, along the way. Sure. But uh, we'll we'll get into that. In yeah, definitely. No, it's 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 super interesting, actually. Uh, very very interesting. Now, normally I would go on and ask you a little bit about uh, your business, uh, sort of how it's structured. But before we do that today, I'd like to, I'd like to go a little bit of a different uh, route. I, I want to talk more of a broad question which i think is really important to uh, many investors uh, and uh, perhaps managers may not be focusing us on this uh, enough and that's really what people when they look at track records may be perceiving as the value they get when they look at a manager but in reality it may not be you know anything to do with skill or alpha um, some people might say that, you know, we've seen a lot of sort of style drift and, you know, because deep down, uh, you know, it's often rooted uh, in the managers that over time they change their strategy and their style. And I think maybe the last few years we've seen quite a big, uh, you know, uh, shift in, 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 in that sense. Um, so I'd, I'd love to I'd love to hear your opinion about this and and where where you see the dangers may lie of an increased correlation between the uh you know so-called alternative strategies that are designed to protect investors against traditional investment uh you know when they have trouble um and you know the traditional asset classes themselves sure um uh, great question actually and uh I think that there's some pretty interesting angles uh, on this, especially looking at it from a CTA perspective. Sure. So first, uh, I mean, I will I will cover the CTA industry, and I, then I will take it more broadly within I think uh, you know within the hedge fund uh, universe. Sure. So today, the CTA industry can be replicated with a very simple model, such as 10-day to 100-day simple moving average crossover strategy. Okay. So the most basic strategy you can imagine, you apply it equally to you know, four sectors uh, without any other optimization. You, have, you already have something which is 70% correlated to the CTA industry, which is outperforming about you know, 3 to 5% a year due to fees. Right. So about 10 years ago, the CTA industry was looked at as uh, a big pool of uh, skill-based returns. Today, it is more and more apparent that at least 90% of those returns are really very easily replicatable and the techniques of replication are, are broadly available. Okay. This is step number one. So 
starting with that, saying that the industry can actually be replicated so easily. Now, if you start looking at the at the offshoots of this industry, so if you look at the the managers that have raised money in the recent years, uh, and they have grown from you know into the twenty billions and tens of billions and five billions, et cetera, et cetera, you will see that they uh, actually have exposure to certain factors, and most commonly, the factors that they are exposed to have been. Um, risk on strategy so strategies that are correlated to the equity markets in one way or another right so um, over the years we wrote uh, three research pieces that actually explore uh, the specific not not looking at the CTA industry as one broad basket but saying specifically um, what are the factor drifts that could actually affect the returns of CTAs and so I will list those factors. I'll go over them you know, quickly and sure. give you give you an opportunity, you know, an opportunity to see what kind of impact these factors can have. So, suppose you're investing in the S and P 500 and you see a mutual fund which is down, uh, which is up, let's say, 20 percent more than the S and P. You say, "Wow, the manager is a superstar." Or you say, "Well, he's actually invested in microcaps and they've done very well this year." So, right. at this stage, considering the transparency has changed the view of the CTA industry. Uh, it's important for the investors to go one step beyond and become aware of the sub-factors and their impact because these uh, these uh, sub-factors that have been performing very well uh, have very different characteristics uh, during equity corrections, as we will cover. Okay. So let's uh, look at them uh, quickly. I would say the first factor is a sector optimization. It means CTAs have been allocating more and more to fixed income because fixed income has performed very, very well in the last 20 years. Sure. Now, it happens to be that fixed income is also the most liquid sector, and therefore, CTAs, as they're growing, even whether, even if there, it was not a research-driven optimization, um, the, uh, the allocation issue and the liquidity issue forced them to allocate more to fixed income. Mm. So, uh, allocating uh, more to fixed income could actually improve uh, your sharp ratio over uh, the last 15 years by 40%. So if you look at a basic model, the 10-100, which we'll take as the benchmark for the CTA industry, sure. and, and you increase the fixed income sector allocation, uh, your sharp ratio would go up by 40%, which is you know, already uh, very, very substantial. Sure. So that's factor number one. Now, as a side note, uh, fixed income has been ne negatively correlated to stocks which means during equity corrections, um, it's provided substantial returns to CTAs. I would, I would say the majority of returns that CTAs have uh, generated in the last uh, 15 years during equity corrections has, have come as a result of their fixed income exposure. Yeah. Okay. So that's a factor number one. So sector optimization, and there's a, there's a potential for substantial improvement in sharp ratio due to an increase in allocation to fixed income. Mm -hmm. Factor number two is long versus short. It means if you look at um, the returns of CTAs uh, over the last uh, 20 years, you will see that uh, over 90% of the returns of a basic CTA strategy uh, come from the long side. It means long trades. Sure. Yeah. Short short trades have made almost no money. A couple of periods, are, you know, around 94, 01 to 03, very small returns, and then 07 to 09, some some pretty good returns there. But overall, shorts are almost flat. Yeah. Now, effectively, this means that the CTA industry is not so different than the buy and hold, just you know, general, you know, running a buy and hold strategy 
on the same uh, basket or the same portfolio that CTAs trade. And this is very surprising to most. You're saying all these trading models, et cetera, et cetera, are really minutely different than the buy and hold on the same markets. Mm-hmm. So now... So we're saying the, the longs, if you traded uh, longs only instead of trading longs and shorts, uh, you would have improved your sharp ratio by 80% over the last 15 years. Okay. Now, again, assume you're a large CTA and here you have uh, higher transaction costs due to, due, to, you know, due to your size. Sure. And shorts are basically at this stage a straight line down. Mm-hmm. Due to the higher transaction cost, you would say, you would say, why, why am I trading shorts? Let me focus more and more on the longs. So, again, this as you grow in size, this factor is something which is imposed on you. Sure. And it's improved your sharp ratio by eighty percent. So we see again the potential for self-reinforcing feedback loop, where the managers that are growing in size have are are forced to allocate to factors which have done very well. And I would, I would, I would argue completely by chance. Sure. So um, the third factor uh, is the time frame. Uh, over the years, and we've shown this in our research pieces. Over the years, CTAs have had to increase the time frame that they use for their models. Now you can use uh, ten one hundred. Uh, it used to be in in the eighties and nineties that. 10-day to 40-day simple moving average was the classical trend-following strategy. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, in the t- 2000s, uh, the first, uh, first decade uh, of the new century, it became 10-100. And today, if you look at it, if you do a factor uh, analysis, you will see that uh, CTAs are trading time frames as long as 10-day to 500-day moving average, so much more long-term. Wow. Here we're talking um, where the, the average days per trade used to be 10, 15. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking uh, 100 days, 150 days per trade if, yeah. you don't count, if you don't count rolls. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Now, just to give you an idea of how, um, uh, how valuable it would have been to trade this 10,500, uh, to begin with, the, the equity curve of 10,500 has not even flatlined in the last five years, such as the rest of the CTA industry. Yeah. So you look at 10,100 or 10,040, you see in the last, uh, since 2009, you know, those models have not made any money. 10,500 is in a straight line up without any interruption. Sure. So uh, if you optimize the portfolio and add uh, 10,500, you would have the potential to improve your sharp ratio by 70%. Mm. Instead of 0.5, you know, we're talking you know, uh, 0.8 and that sort of, uh, that sort of level, which, which sure. takes you to the stu- superstar level immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are already three factors which have improved your sharp ratio by 40%, 80%, and 70%. Mm-hmm. And there's no skill involved yet. <laughs> well, I, you know, sure. I'll, I'll let you go on. I, I, I've got some, some, some observations, of course, but sure. I'll let you go on. Okay. So um, a, a third factor... Uh, that we talk about in our research pieces is the fact that CTAs um, make money during trends, but the biggest factor that explains uh, their returns and the value-added aspect of their returns is the fact that they make money when the volatility is expanding. Mm. Sure. So when you put on a, a trade, a, you know, a trend-following trade, you're making money because of the trend, but you're really benefiting w- mainly when the vol is expanding as the trend starts. Sure. Once the trend is established, 
your returns start to correlate to, the fi- to, to equities and they start to correlate to, fi- to fixed income. Mm-hmm. There's no more alpha relative to the traditional portfolios. Okay. Okay? So now, uh, over the years, we show that CTAs, uh, this character of benefiting from the volatility expansion is called positive skew. Basically, mm-hmm. when you have a surprise, it tends to be positive on the returns. Sure. And the opposite negative skew is when you know, when there's a surprise, it tends to be more negative. So mm-hmm. now CTAs over the years, in order to generate higher sharp ratios, have taken profits faster and bought the corrections within the trends more and more. Mm-hmm. Very, very substantial. First, this improves your sharp ratio, but also um, it makes you less capable of benefiting during volatility expansions. Can you, and can you explain that a little bit? Uh, if just just take a, a, a few steps back and then and explain that again. I'm not sure I fully understood what you what you meant by they bought the drawdown. Okay, so uh, let's say you're running a simple trend following model such yeah. as ten one hundred, yeah. and you size your position based on volatility. Sure. Now, the, the what I was saying is the most profitable trades for CTAs are the trades that were entered when the volatility was low sure. and then expanded once the trade was in place. Mm-hmm. So now the danger of that is that after a trend is well established, the volatility could have doubled versus when you put the trade on. Sure. And now your risk in that specific market is twice as what it used to be from a VAR perspective. Sure, all things being you know equal that you haven't moved your stop and so on and so forth. The stops for the typical trend following models are pretty far away. It means after a trend, they could be two weeks, three weeks away from you. Sure. So uh, if you replicate the industry, I would say stops are irrelevant. It means you don't have to have stops in the market. You uh, You have trailing stops. I mean, if the moving averages cross, Sure. you trade. But you can trade market on close. You can trade once a week, you can trade once a month as a matter of fact, sure. and your performance would not be very different. Sure. No, so, uh, so, so what we're saying is trend followers uh, classically used to benefit from the acceleration. Mm-hmm. In the, so price is moving 1% a day and then the trend is established now. This market is like a really hot market and now the tr- the, that market is moving 3% a day. Mm-hmm. The typical CTA, nor, cl- classically, you're going to say this is... Um, a real trend and I'm going to be exposed and I'm going to be, I have much higher exposure to this market. The vol has expanded and typically the vol expands when equities are going down. Sure. So when the vol is expanding, CTAs are expected to generate high returns. Yeah. Now let's say CTAs decided that they don't want to risk as much when the vol is expanding and they want to, wait, they want to make money more consistently. Mm what they would do is they would reduce their position size when the vol of markets uh, expanded within the trade. Mm-hmm. And when the market also is retraced, so you're in an uptrend, yeah. uh, the vol ex- expanded slightly, you're going to reduce your position. Yeah. And when, when the vol compresses, which means during a correction, sure. they would they would add, add to their positions. Sure. So they're in an uptrend, uh, picking bottoms and selling rallies. Sure. The benefit of that is that they have, they now have a constant volatility portfolio. Yeah. It means they look at their VAR and they're expecting 15% annual, you know, uh, annual volatility every day. Sure. The downside of this 
is that you, you've lost your positive skew, mm -hmm. you've lost your ability to generate high returns during equity corrections. Mm. Now, this is a basic, uh, so the factor number four, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it you know, just mean reversion broadly. Mm -hmm. Mean reversion means you're selling rallies within the trend and buying the dips within the trend. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanna take this uh, one level beyond and go into the specific example of buying the dips in the, in the financials. It means you can very, eas uh, very easily uh, use a model which buys the S&P if it's down three days in a row. Sure. And because you're expecting it to rally. Same yeah. thing in fixed income. Now, uh, you know, we can potentially make this uh, model available uh, for uh, listeners uh, to the podcast, but... Just to give you a sense of this, so if you bought uh, the S&P, if it's down three days in a row, yeah. uh, and you exited, uh, when you make, so, sorry, I'm going to get a little technical. But no, that's fine, that's fine. We'll, 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 I'll stop you if it gets too technical, but we'll okay. take it step by step. It's a pretty simple model. Sure. So you buy the S&P on the third down close. Yeah. You take a profit if it makes half a daily range. So you bought it at the close. If it goes up half a daily range. Sure. You take profits, and and the uh, so the average to range over what period are you looking at here? Over fifty days, let's okay. say. Okay, not very relevant, but sure. let's say over fifty days, and you have a stop loss, two daily ranges away. Okay, uh, this model, over the last uh, fifteen years, have had a sharp ratio of about one point two. Mm. Even during equity corrections, this model has you can't even tell that 07 to 08 happened. Sure. So, there's in today's world, which is driven by central bank providing central banks providing liquidity mm. to because markets are driving the economy rather than the other way around. Sure, uh, there's been uh, a preponderance of uh, mean reverting strategies in financial markets with, with again, I'm saying sharp ratios over one and without any skill. This is a model which I'll you know I'll provide to to the listeners. Sure. And CTAs are more and more including such strategies which are buying the dips in financials as a way to generate alpha. Sure. Okay. So again, uh, I won't get, the numbers are you know, really wild, but this type of strategy improves the sharp ratio uh, of, a, of the typical trend-following model by 130%. Yeah. <laughs> substantial. <laughs> so very, very substantial. So... I'm just giving you, you know, the potential uh, things that CTAs are introducing there into their portfolios that are substantially changing their characteristics sure. with no skill, which investors have to be aware of if they want to really pick up the real the CTA with real skill after yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very very important. It's very yeah. very important. This there are three more factors okay. that we say CTAs have introduced. One is fixed long equity exposure. Mm -hmm. Sure. So. Um, if you look at the rolling correlation of uh, the BTOP, which are the, the you know the fifty percent, sure. the largest CTAs that control fifty percent of the assets of the CTA industry, yeah, uh, you look at the you you pick out the, you take out their trend following component mm -hmm. through a factor decomposition, the residual returns rolling correlation to the S and P today is seventy percent. Okay. So we're not saying that they're trading equities and they're making money on uh, equities going up. We're saying they have fixed long positions in equities. Yeah. Very different. Now, um, uh, adding a long position uh, in, in the S&P, just to, to keep it simple, uh, over the last 15 years would have improved your sharp ratio by 20%. Mm -hmm. And again, going from a sharp, sharp ratio of 0.5 to 0.6 takes you from 
average to you know almost superstar. I would say at 0.7, you're like superstar level. Sure. Uh, so I mean, this is how dramatic these factors are. Yeah. Now, same uh, same factor is if you short the VIX. So instead of going along the S&P, you can short the VIX, short volatility, which has the same effect as being short uh, puts on the, uh, you know, uh, the underlying. Short, sure. uh, exactly. Then you could actually have improved your sharp ratio by 90%. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then you, you have the typical carry models. Yeah. Which improve your sharp ratio by 18% uh, if you optimize them. Okay. Uh, and then you have cr- now today your, your CTAs are adding credit type strategies. Into okay. you know, by exposure to you know credit swaps and that sort of thing, and those would improve your sharp ratio by about eighty percent. Mm. Okay, so here we're saying there's seven factors which are absolutely not skill based, which are highly correlated to the B top, which means over over time you can see that the B top is steadily increasing its correlation to those fa- seven factors, mm. and all all seven of those factors are things which reduce the ability of CTAs to hedge equity corrections. Sure. So CTAs are getting better and better by introducing the, the, these factors as on a standalone basis, but they're becoming worse and worse at hedging equity corrections. Sure. And investors are, haven't picked up those factors out of the CTA returns yet, and they're therefore focusing on the CTAs that have the most of these factors. Mm. Okay. Very, very interesting, incredibly useful, and very, very insightful. And, 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 and people should really pay attention, even though it might sound very technical, but, but this is important stuff. But let me, and I, I you know, I have the same observations, maybe not so eloquently, uh, sort of described as, as you do. Um, but, but I, I agree with the overall conclusion of what you're saying. Now, the, the question here, and, and this is interesting, and it's particularly interesting and very topical because uh, David Harding from Winton mm-hmm. uh, was on CNBC, I think, yesterday or the day before, in an interview where he was obviously uh, being asked about, um, you know, equities and so on and so forth. And, and he kept stressing the point that they may not be a hedge if equities go down. They may be, but they may not be. And and so uh, from 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 the way you describe things, um, I sense that you, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are saying that a lot of these managers that are doing these new things are doing it to compensate for size. Would that be a fair statement? Or do you think they're doing it uh, not really because of size necessarily, but simply because of trying to introduce some more stability in their returns? Uh, I would say both. And the fact that they don't have to make a choice between one and the other is even a stronger or an accelerator for these optimizations. Mm. So size, definitely you would have to make these optimizations, but also these optimizations have worked extremely well and are working better and better as time goes on. In the last five years, shorting the VIX is like, uh, you know, it has a sharp ratio of, again, over one, just a simple, simple strategy. Mm. So it's, it's numerical and it's size. Yeah. I mean... Obviously, I would love to have uh, David Harding come on the podcast and, and discuss this issue instead of us trying to uh, discuss it, um, uh, you know, uh, because obviously there is some reference to uh, people like uh, Winston who've been very, very successful, stabilized the return, reduced the volatility, and, and, and now coming out saying that they may not be a hedge when, when equity markets go down and so on and so forth. But, but let me be devil's advocate here, even though I agree with what you're saying. And that is, we say it's not due to skill, but what if the skill is 
that they actually introduce these strategies at a time where they would be beneficial for their returns. But it's not to say that they won't de you know, deleverage or de-emphasize these strategies uh, later on at a time where maybe the trend-following strategy should have more weight because we know and we have to accept, perhaps with your firm as one of the few exceptions, but we have to accept that for trend-following strategies, it's been a really difficult and tough environment. And that obviously goes back to the fact that volatility has been decreasing and generally trend-following strategies make money from the expansion of volatility. So I just wonder, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, some of these firms, they have 150 PhDs and they have to do something. And if maybe they actually came up with this, you know, observation saying, listen, we should, uh, you know, increase uh, some, you know, risk exposure to these type of strategies, because as long as the environment is as it is, and we're not detecting any changes in the data, they will help. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Okay. Great question, Niels. Uh, let me give you my angle on it. Sure. So, um, first, uh, broadly speaking, I would say uh, people have, or it's been uh, uh, basically predicting factor turnover has been uh, something that I want to say less than 1% of fund, ma fund managers have been able to do. Mm. Like, it's not something which is broadly done. Sure. Nobody even... Even the, the macro guys, you know, the Lewis Bacons, et cetera, et cetera, at the time were, um, were really truly exceptional managers, today cannot tell you where the returns are going to be, uh, what factor. If you can actually predict what sector uh, or where the returns are going to be, you, you, you know, your sharp ratio would be three and above. Sure. Now, going back to the CTA, so you're saying, is it possible that these PhDs have found a way to tell you when you should exit risk on trading and go into risk off trading? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I would say it's very highly, you know, it's very unlikely. The reason I say that is because we've had an example already of an equity correction after these factors were introduced into the CTAs. So these factors really started peaking into the large CTAs uh, around 2003. Right, 2004, 2005, when the vol went really low, uh, interest rates went re really low, and the, the carry trades became highly, um, highly con contributory to a CTA portfolio. And then here comes 07 to 09. So you'd say, did these PhDs, uh, were they able to, to get out of the risk on trading and go into trend following at mm -hmm. the right time? And if you look at the returns of these large CTAs or the BTOP 07 to 09, relative to the replicator that has a beta of one, Mm. to them. So you replicate the BTOP, you know, with a certain, you know, with its beta, etc. Yeah. You see that 07 to 09, the replicator uh, over the two-year period made about 96% in return, mm -hmm. where the BTOP was up about 17%. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that uh, the, the CTAs that introduced these, these new styles uh, sure. into their portfolio underperformed the replicator by 80% in absolute return. Yeah, over a two-year period. Same so, same volatility between the two. Beta of one, okay. absolutely. Okay. So, if if you look at the the way uh, the beat up had performed relative to the replicator before, it has about seventy-five percent correlation, mm. and they're completely in line. Now, so I would say that there already was one major test, and they failed majorly. Right, right. <laughs> at a period which was really critical. So. Now, they're telling you, we're not going to give you a hedge. We really don't care. Now, today, we're a hedge fund. We're not a CTA anymore. Sure. That's, a, that's a fair choice. 
but investors should know what they're getting. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And it, as I said, I think it's really super important and um, um, something I, I, I probably think is, is, is something that you have, uh, well, not only thought a lot about clearly, um, but 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 also has sort of shaped the way you uh, do things, which I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to uh, very shortly. But I want to go back and and talk a little bit about you know you have these six strategies. Uh, you have you know almost 800 million dollars under management. How big a team does it take to uh, to to run a business like that? And and how is it structured? And how how do you balance between what to do in house and what to do you know uh, by by the means of uh, outsourced uh, you know providers? Uh, we can cover that. There's one point I'd like to make about those factors. Sure. And it's that uh, the hedge fund industry, like a lot of these factors, can be understood correctly within the CTA space and within the hedge fund space, if people measure risk by measuring tail risk rather than measuring volatility or beta to the stock market. Mm -hmm. So most hedge funds and most CTAs today are generating numerical alpha to their benchmarks, but the ones that are generating numerical alpha are doing so because they're taking more tail risk than their peers. Right. Not because of skill. Sure. And that's something we we went into our second research piece. So, and CTAs are doing the same thing. They're converting positive skew for negative skew with higher Sharpe ratio. Mm. So this is something very very important. Sure. So alpha does not equal skill. Alpha equals uh, skill sometimes. <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. So go. So going back to your, to your question in terms of um, how can you d- run six strategies. Um, you know what kind of uh, infrastructure is needed. Sure. I would I would say the most important thing to run, uh, you know, a, f- a firm like ours, mm-hmm. I- you know, infrastructure is needed. Yeah. But the most important thing is to have a clarity of direction, mm-hmm. in order uh, and a clarity of purpose. If you're trying to create a product that does everything, uh, it's never the, inf- the infrastructure is never going to be enough. Yeah. So. So the most important thing is to start with a clear mind in terms of what you're trying to offer and to stick to that no matter what the market conditions are. Mm. Now, infrastructure-wise, because what we do is based on automation. Right. So we're saying, I mean, as a starting premise for CTAs, we're saying the human mind is not equipped to make uh, ideal decisions in the financial markets because the financial markets are there to compensate for what feels good, not uh, so basically when you want to, you put it on a trade that feels good, you typically lose money. Sure. And the way you in a way have to be detached from what feels good, from what everybody is thinking, mm-hmm. and you, in a way you have to be contrarian and you have to put on a trade that nobody wants. And the human mind is not designed to make such decisions. Sure. It's designed to think as part of the crowd. Yeah. So now we're saying we're going to rely on models. We're gonna we're gonna decide. We're gonna program the models and tell them what to do. But then we have to trust them a hundred percent. Now that gives you, when you understand how distant you are, you need to be from the models. It gives you the ability to run with a relatively small team a lot of different strategies because once they're programmed, as long as they're not over optimized, you can give them life and let them live. Yeah. You don't have to be thinking about them every day whether I need to re-optimize the factors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a question of, you know, we, you have a certain degree of mental space. We believe that that mental space is um, most well spent 
during the, re the, the research and the design of the strategy. But then if the strategy is over-optimized, then it's going to take too much mental space to maintain. And therefore, that's not a place that we go. Sure. Okay. So now infrastructure-wise, today uh, more and more things are becoming commoditized. Yeah. You know, whether it's the accounting, the execution, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for us, we're pretty good at programming, et cetera, et cetera. So we've actually um, kept in-house the order management system, uh, order execution system. Uh, obviously, the trading strategies, we do everything in-house, so we don't outsource. Uh, so it's a lot of the admin, the back office, and all that can easily be outsourced. And today, it's a commodity and... Uh, the price spread between different providers is really minimal. So I would say it's like a, it's like a no-brainer. Sure. Over time, it's, uh, now that uh, the replication is coming into play, I would say that uh, you're going to see that some strategies are going to become commodity as well. You're going to have five different firms offering you know, uh, what used to be, a, let's say, a, a small-cap mutual fund. In, in the CTA world, it's going to be the sub-strategies are going to become available exactly the same way through different uh, through different pro providers, etc., uh, etc. Et so, um, the industry is very mature compared to where it used to be twenty years ago, and ten years ago, and five years ago, even. Mm, but uh, with nine people, we're able to. Uh, I would say, out of the infrastructure that we have, uh, we we can service clients. We don't have that much of an infrastructure in terms of uh, on the asset raising side. Sure. Be because we focused on servicing one client for seven years, yeah. uh, today we have about five clients that account for you know ninety nine percent of our sure. assets. Sure. Uh, so we're much more uh, focused on client servicing, reporting, and, and that sort of thing, uh, rather than asset raising. And and as such, I would say our infrastructure is you know uh, pretty tight. Sure. 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 Yeah. But yeah. also still. You know, it allows you still to grow um, as long as you sort of keep that focus. Because, as you say, automation takes care of uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, stuff. So, so very interesting. Now, looking at the track record, and I think we'll sort of probably focus, uh, if 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 I may, focus on the original program. We may talk a little bit about some of the other stuff, but but if we focus on the original program because it has the longest track record. Um, Going back to sort of May two thousand, sorry, nineteen ninety nine, when when you started, um, and and all the way through to now, um, when people nowadays look at track records, they tend to believe that okay, uh, this is what I'm gonna get uh, going forward. But but that's obviously not true because most programs go through you know evolutions and changes uh, over time. But how would you say people should look at your track record when they look at it? Um, has it has it, you know, is it very different? Does it did, does the program look very different today than it did when you started? And and when was these big changes? When did they occur? So uh, here again, Niels, uh, what's really important is to know relative to the benchmark what bets we've made, what factors we've, we've exposed ourselves to over time, and whether our philosophy has changed over time. Mm -hmm. Nobody can predict the returns, but if they can know the sub-factors that they're exposed to, typically they're pretty happy because they can build the portfolio in the way that they want. And I think that's really critical. Sure. So what we've done over the years in the original program, we've had the philosophy of, we've always, we're looking first to be you know, a trend follower, it means, you know, we're looking to correlate to the CTA indices. Right. 
but we also want to generate a lot of alpha. So we've generated about 7% of annual alpha to the BTOP per year mm-hmm. uh, since inception. Now, philosophically, that philosophy has not changed. So our alpha is there. So we're not looking to be a replicator in the original program. We're looking to generate alpha. And we want our alpha to come from positively, ske- positively skewed sources of returns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which which means we don't want to be bottom picking uh, equities and mm-hmm. with, with a sharp ratio of one point two. Sure, we don't want to be allocating more to fixed income. We don't want to be going long equities. We don't want to be shorting VIX. We don't want any carry. Uh, we don't want any credit spreads. Sure. Okay. So now, how those concepts have been expressed over time has evolved substantially. Mm. So, um, so broadly speaking, something which is really important and. V- like I would say critical for the firm's survival is that today nine sources of alpha out of 10 are negatively skewed. It means they involve mean reversion, they involve being expo- exposed to risk on type of trades and we disqualify those immediately at the, at, the, at the forefront. Okay. So now you're left with very few research ideas but those are typically uh, things that are more difficult to exploit. Yeah due to transaction costs, Mm -hmm. but we're pretty good at that, at controlling that, and that's how we've generated this alpha. Now, the benefit of positively skewed sources of alpha is that they are more stable when the market regime changes. Mm -hmm. So if you tell me, you know, uh, I have a strategy which is going to buy the S&P when it's down three days in a row because the S&P never goes down even two days in a row now. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's great, but if there's any slight shift in market regime, then it's a very, very large vulnerability. Sure. So the track record of the original program, the philosophy has not changed, but the way we've expressed this long volatility or long tails type of uh, bias that we have uh, has changed over time. And I'll give you examples. Uh, first, uh, basic strategy. We're not looking to go into... Uh, first, our, our days per trade is about seven days per trade. Okay. Uh, where the typical CTA today is probably around 30 days per trade. Mm-hmm. The reason we pick uh, the shorter time frames is because that's where you can generate alpha and that's where you have the most positive skew. Okay. So the most, if you want to benefit from tail events, so large increases in vol, seven days per trade on average is where you have the most expansion in vol. Okay, interesting. When you go to you know 30 days and now people are going to 60 days and that, so the larger CTAs are of course trading more long term, the more long term you go, the less positive skew you generate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're looking for vol expansion, uh, and vol expansion happens when you cannot predict when, but you can predict the size of it based on its long term average. So typically, you you would look at the volatility of the market in the recent past and, mm-hmm. and compared to a longer term past um, and if the recent volatility is much lower than the long term volatility you would say this is there's been some sort of vol compression now from this type of environment a trend following signal in many different time frames is going to give you much more positive skew and much more alpha than the typical what's going typically today in the industry which is to instead buy the dips, to the vol has expanded, let me trade, let me put on the mean reversion trade. Mm-hmm. So we're still looking for the vol compression, although the vol keeps going down and 
it's becoming more and more difficult because of all the central banks basically pro constantly providing liquidity. Sure. But even when in a low-vol environment, we're able to generate returns because the vol has spikes. Right. So the markets are pushed very far away from equilibrium, and they're, doing, and they're there with very low vol. But when something goes wrong, then the vol expands much more than it used to. Mm. So even last year, when the vol was extremely low and coming down, uh, we were able to be up uh, in the original program about you know 16% or so, yeah. because there were four small spikes in volatility. Uh, if you look at the VIX, for example, and in those four periods, that's when we made about four percent in each, and ended up up 16% on the year. Okay. So uh, now, the track record over time, uh, vol expansion is measured very differently today than what it used to be when we started. Mm -hmm. When we started, you could look at the four-day volatility compared to the 50-day volatility. If the four-day volatility was less the, than the 50-day, um, you would say, okay, I'm going to take whatever, this signal or that signal or that sort of thing. Right. Today, we're looking at things uh, in a much more complex way. For example, we measure volatility differently when the market is making new lows and new highs than when it's in the middle of the range. Right, okay. There are a lot of people who are protecting price levels, mainly central banks mm -hmm. and other you know, option sellers and that sort of thing. So when a central bank sees, you know, for example, dollar-yen go below a certain level, it's going to intervene and it wants to intervene in a way that minimizes its, its cost, which means it has to trade as much as possible, as quickly as possible and to create a dramatic reversal. So if you measure the volatility at the tails, independently of the volatility in the middle of the range, you have a lot of information about the character of the market. Mm -hmm. That's an example of going from a basic volatility measure to something which is much more pattern-based and much more relevant in today's world. Would you say that volatility is almost more important for you than price and when, when, you know, in identifying you know, trends? Absolutely. A price... As I said, uh, trends, which are, so the typical, I would say the typical approach, it seems from a replication, in today's world, you have a trend following model. Everybody yeah. starts with that. And they say, now, how can I improve it? Mm. I, I want to pick the trades. Typically what they do, I want to pick the trades that have the highest sharp ratio. As you do that, you're looking for those clean trends. Mm -hmm. Th those clean trends don't have vol expansion in them. And they're highly correlated to the stock market. Mm. They're highly correlated to fixed income. Sure. For us, we're not looking for a trend. We're looking for the correct volatility setup. Mm. We're looking to generate alpha. Yeah. And in, it, it needs to happen very quickly in time. That's only available if the vol accelerates. Mm. So yes, volatility is the most important criteria behind our setup. Okay. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Now, tell me a little bit about how you then constructed the, um, the original program, so to speak, in terms of the kinds of models you use and, and, and maybe a little bit about, um, you know, uh, I'm sure they're not all the same time frame, but, but how, how have you sort of from an overall point of view constructed the, the program? So, in terms of where we are today, uh, we're trading anywhere from uh, all the way from day trades to some you know, uh, long-term models that can stay in a trade forever. Mm. But, uh, but about 75, 80% of what we do is time-constrained, which means after a certain amount of time, we exit the trade no matter what. Okay. Because the alpha is not there anymore, and we expect other CTAs uh, to be there, and therefore we say there's no point being here. 
okay. the trade is not as valuable. Yeah. So um, the concepts uh, that we use are utilized across, uh, you know, again, multiple time frames. Mm -hmm. The key is measuring volatility, but volatility is not the right term, really. Okay. <laughs> so um, markets have memory. It means you look at a trend following trades, and this is not a, a random walk. Mm -hmm. There's a, a serial correlation which is way over zero, and then the market stops uh, from the trend and it goes into a negative serial correlation type of environment. So it's not that the market overall shows a zero autocorrelation day to day, but it's actually positive sometimes and negative sometimes. Mm. Now, what is the impact on, of that on volatility? Uh, if you're measuring volatility in a trend, like from a, uh, from a VAR perspective, um, the vol can go to zero. If you go to credit market where you're getting paid a certain amount of money every day, sure. the vol is zero. Yeah. Now, the risk is definitely not zero. <laughs> no. Okay. So, uh, conceptually, our philosophy is that investors are not pricing tail risk correctly because they're using volatility as a measure of risk and they're over allocating to markets that have extreme tail risk. Mm. Being confused, thinking that they're getting skill. Sure. So we want to maximize the exposure to that. That exposure happens in the short-term timeframes, for example, by looking at the volatility at certain times of the day, which is highly predictable in terms of the future. So, uh, okay, let's, let's say you let's take a concrete example. Let's let's say if you can, let's just try yeah. and, and and visualize it really for for the listeners. So, uh, I will go back to a model which says you know compare the ten day um, volatility as measured. Let's say compare the ten day range mm -hmm. to the fifty day range. Mm -hmm when the 10-day range is small in size relative to the 50-day range, mm -hmm. then take trend-following signals. Right. Okay. That's one example. Now, uh, it's not really the range. I mean, we're looking at volatility from a statistical way. It means we're looking... Volatility should be normal, and when there's something which is missing in that normality, we're looking for it to come back with a vengeance mm -hmm. uh, to, for the market to become stable again. So if the market only goes up, you would expect a sharp correction. If it goes up without noise, you would expect the correction to be much larger than if it goes up with noise. Sure. Okay. So you want the, you're looking for the pattern of volatility to be uh, symmetrical and healthy. And um, so we're looking, I give you the example from an absolute level, you know, 10-day range versus 50-day sure, sure. range. Sure, sure. But instead of looking at the range, we're looking at the peculiar characteristics of volatility uh, I give you the example of the volatility at the ranges versus the volatility in the middle of the range. Right. Anytime you have big differentials in uh, different aspects of volatility, there's going to be something which is going to rebalance the market. Mm -hmm. so, so, so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that first you have some kind of volatility filter that determines what kind of model you want to trade. The The models are... I mean, you can, the models, again, you can replicate with moving averages. Typically, most of our trades are based on stops. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's not channel breakout, but it's based on stops. And okay. it's different than... Uh, 
because so, you need a trigger. I mean, it, it's fine to say that yes. you know, uh, if 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 one volatility level is below another, then do trend following. But you still need a trend following trigger some some somehow. So. So the, the trigger, uh, you're going to be okay if you use moving averages. You're sure. going to be okay if you use channel breakout. Okay. So, uh, uh, so why don't we, for, to, for you to have a complete model, I would mm -hmm. say uh, only trade when the vol has compressed, then trade a 10-day channel breakout. Okay. Finish. Yeah. <laughs> That's one model. Yeah. Now, the way we do it, uh, we're using different entry levels. Yeah. Uh, than the channel breakout, but uh, this sure. would give you something which is very different than what the market is doing and already. And you would add a time stop to that trend following model, even though it's trend following and usually trend following, you know, implies that you let the the, the trade run. You would actually uh, apply a, a a time stop uh, uh, as well. Absolutely, uh, because we're looking to maximize the amount of alpha per unit of beta. Beta mm -hmm. is easy to get, uh, so uh, we don't have an issue with that. Uh, so we're looking to maximize the alpha. We say, depending on the setup, so let's say uh, we're looking for a vol compression uh, where we're looking for the market to correct within a long-term uptrend and the vol to compress, expecting a continuation of the trend with a vol expansion. Mm -hmm. That's a type of trade where you're going to generate some alpha for two or three days and very quickly trend followers are going to catch up with you. Mm. Okay, so you have to say exit after three days, for example. Sure. Now, on the other side, let's say the market is in an uptrend and the vol has acted in a very, there's, ex, there's an extreme amount of randomness in the market. Uh, so, Randomness. Uh, how can I? Let's say sure. the the serial correlation uh, of the market has incre uh, gone very negative mm. after a big uptrend, and now you're expecting that if a correction comes, it's going to be very uh, it's going to be very aggressive. Mm. Okay, so now that type of market, if that correction happens. It's gonna. You can stay in a trade much longer because it's gonna take trend followers two weeks to catch up with you. Sure. And therefore, for two weeks, you're generating alpha. Mm. So every setup condition has embedded in it a time after which uh, the beta, on average, switches. Sorry, the alpha switches to beta. Do you trade these same? You know, uh, I guess I have many questions. Actually, it's very, very interesting. Um, firstly, I wanted to to ask you. How many different models would you say that you run, and and does does each model uh, get applied to to all the markets in the portfolio? That's very very important. Yes, um, based on the stability of market regimes in today's world, within the CTA space, mm. I would say that not applying models to all markets is a guaranteed over optimization. Mm within the CTA space in today's market regime, mm -hmm. I emphasize. So, I believe that, yes, I mean, you're much, I mean, if you hire, okay, you gotta be really careful about designing models that work on individual markets, sure. and you gotta say a lot of prayers when you use them, <laughs> okay? Yeah. So, um, yes, we apply models to, to, uh, to everything in the portfolio. Now, in terms of how we build the original program, we have about, call it, five different concepts mm -hmm. which are applied in two or more different time frames. Okay. They're exactly the same concept. Okay. okay. 
one could be the skew of the market, one right. could be the volatility compression, mm-hmm. one could be the volatility at the extremes versus the middle of the day, that sort of thing. Sure. So it's the same concept. The entry conditions are, uh, and the time frames are different, and these things are concepts which survive you know, across markets and survive across uh, time frames as well. Fascinating. Now, um, this is... This is complex stuff. I mean, for you to explain this, um, you know, this this is not, um, you know, a lot of people will will have difficulties in in sort of uh, um, getting their head around uh, these type of concepts because it's a little bit more than uh, traditional trend following. You buy when the price move up and you sell when the price move down, and so on and so forth. But what I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation that your upbringing in Lebanon actually influence the way you design your systems. So now I want to try and bridge that gap between these very complex models that you just described and your upbringing in a, a, an inherently <laughs> unstable environment. How does that work? <laughs> uh, thanks for the interesting question. Well, you see, we see the world based on our memory of of what it's supposed to be like. It means most people see the world based on their own filters of reality, not based on how it is. Right. Okay. So I have filters, people who grew up, uh, you know. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.